We're spending this portion of WGTD's morning show talking about, of all things, quitting. Quitting, which is one of the things that most of us want least to do in our lives. We are reluctant to quit. We tend to look down on those that we regard as quitters. It's one of the worst things you can sort of attach to somebody, uh, calling them a, a, a quitter. But in fact, we need to think about quitting or goal disengagement, if you want to uh, think of it in more proper or thoughtful terms, we need to think about this much more thoroughly. And in fact, some of the best decisions that a person can make in their own lives might very well involve quitting versus just sort of mindlessly persisting persisting in pursuit of a, of a particular dream or desire. Uh, and sometimes it means uh, letting go of something which is not ever going to happen, and sometimes it means letting go of something that you do have, but which no longer gives you the pleasure or satisfaction that perhaps it once did, or is perhaps undermining your well-being in, in, in other ways. In other words, we should not be simplistic when we think about or talk about quitting. Hence, the value of this fascinating new book called Mastering the Art of Quitting, why it matters in life, love, and work. It's written by Peg Streep and by my guest today, Alan Bernstein, who has uh, written extensively on topics re regarding uh, changes in life, transitions uh, between various careers and professions. He serves on the faculty of the New York Medical College and New York University's doctoral program in psychotherapy. So he comes at this topic from a a perspective of expertise on a couple of different levels. This book is published by Da Capo, again called Mastering the Art of Quitting. Ellen Bernstein, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thanks so much, Greg. I'm very happy to be here, and that was a great introduction. Uh, the, the, the issue for quitting, and I, I think you touch on it lightly, but I want to talk about it a little more, <clears throat> is that we're hardwired to persist. In other words, uh, there are all kinds of unconscious uh, biases in our personality which keep us going probably long after what we're doing serves us well. And we tend to create all kinds of uh, ideas about why we should persist. But really what they do is protect us from the fear or anxiety of being labeled losers or um, acknowledging that we made a mistake along the way. And the, the value of our book lies in helping people understand how they can withstand the, the psychological assault of being labeled a quitter or a loser and um, be able to recognize that it may be in their best interest to uh, persist in a different direction rather than the one they've chosen. Hmm. This topic is near and dear to me on, on a couple of different levels. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, most recently, my, my, my thoughts about the topic were pricked by seeing a film, which, by the way, I absolutely loved, called Saving... Uh, saving Mr. Banks or Mrs. Banks, I'm trying to remember, but it's the the yeah. film about Walt Disney and the woman who wrote right. Mary Poppins, and right. I loved the film, but uh -huh. but part of the point of that film is at one point or several points, Walt Disney is heard kind of spouting what was such a central theme of his life that if you sort of wish hard enough and work hard enough, your dreams will come true, which has right. uh, been t told to us in song and verse and all kinds of things, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> Even in the context of this really thoughtfully made and, and beautifully moving story and film, um, I found myself just bothered all over again by 
that myth, which uh, is not proffered just by Walt Disney, but by lots of other people as well, that it's all about uh, not letting anything dissuade you from a particular goal. And because I happen to be a music professor, a teacher of voice, I, I, I also think about this in terms of my own students, many of whom have lofty aspirations to someday be on a Broadway stage or the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. And what is one to do with those kind of goals and dreams? Um, maybe not discard them altogether, but at some point uh, they, they, they maybe are, are, are dreams simply beyond our reach. Um, I wonder if you could react to any of that and maybe on top yeah. of it say a word about what prompted you and your co-author to address this matter of quitting uh, in, in this book. Well, uh, you, you raise a couple of really interesting points. I didn't happen to see that film, but but in truth, I mean, the, the probably the um, most blatant version of the persistence myth is Rocky and, you know, the five or six films that have been made after that which captures a particularly uh, American idea about persistence that, that you can't be done in by uh, simple things like, you know, fighting a fighter who's much better than you, that, that if you keep going, somehow you'll, you'll triumph. And, of course, the truth is, as you point out with some of your students, some of them won't triumph, and the most uh, flexible and most um, careful among them will be able to pick up the parts of their career that make sense for them, whether they become teachers or coaches or whatever happens to their music or whether it becomes a hobby. But the point is to be able to uh, work with a spectrum of interests. Now, both Peg and I uh, left careers. I was, I, we were both, oddly enough, in the same um, program. We were both taking PhDs. She was at Columbia and I was at Rutgers, and we were both in the middle of our dissertation. I found at that point that my teaching career was really a an error. The part I liked about teaching was being with my students and helping them, you know, select ideas about themselves, and that I had gone into it because I loved to read and confused loving to read with loving to teach. Um, <laughs> at the ac- academic level, teaching is about research. And unless you're prepared to do research, you're going to be teaching English 101 for the rest of your life. And that was not what I wanted to do. And I had to go back to school and start over. And I remember to this day the sense of um, humiliation I felt at having made a mistake of that magnitude. Now, I was in my 20s, so uh, I was lucky in the sense that people are very forgiving of that change in the 20s. But as you get on in life, 30s and 40s, it becomes much harder because the weight of feeling that you made an error uh, is so much more powerful. One of the biases that we talk about in the book, and it's very well known in economics, is what they call the sunk cost fallacy. And that means uh, we've sunk so much cost, so much energy, so much money, so much time, so much <clears throat> of ourselves, that at this point it becomes um, you know, almost impossible to give it up. And, you know, in very practical terms, uh, we face that in everyday life. Uh, my wife and I have a, an older Honda, and I brought it into the shop a couple of weeks ago because a light had come on, and they said, well, it's going to be about $2,000 worth of work. And we had to decide at that point whether it was worth it or not. In other words, were we throwing money at a car that was really kind of going to be an ongoing suck of money, or were we rebuilding a car that would last us a few years? And that's a very simple version of the sunk cost fallacy, but 
in real life, people face that kind of decision all the time. Have they put in money, time, effort, self into a profession that's not going to pay them back? And it's not going to give them the feelings they need to feel motivated and that they're doing the right kind of work in life? Or should they be thinking in terms of starting a new career? Hmm. Now, if they do want to start, what, we, what we've observed, Greg, is that, um, that there is a powerful impulse at that point to go into uh, what we call an optimistic bias. That is, the orientation towards thinking uh, in, in, in the idea that you'll be able to work it out but we find that it's much more advantageous if you actually write down where you're going to go, what the direction is. That in fact, as they say in business, you want a pessimist to choose the business and then an optimist to push it through. And that's true as well in career. You want to think pessimistically. In other words, you want to think of the possible gains and the possible losses going forward before you commit yourself to it. But once you commit yourself to it, you move ahead with uh, all the vigor you can. And that's really what's going to replace the sense of, of lost opportunity that people go through. We can't, we can't protect people from that. It's, it's hardwired into our society, into our civilization. But we can give them the, the ability to, um, to actually um, have the fortitude by setting up goals for themselves, by setting up... Uh, a new version of themselves that they can take into the future. Hmm. I want to ask you about one other factor uh, involved in our tendency to persist beyond what is maybe fully uh, productive or or, or beneficial Uh for us. Uh, And I love the way you kind of pick it apart, how how often our tendency to do that, to be in a sense overly persistent, or or is is often tied up in several different things. One of them you talk about is listening to anecdote. And this is tied up in something very fancy sounding, availability heuristic, but it has something to do with our tendency to be swayed maybe too quickly or too profoundly Mm-hmm. by an inspiring story or a exactly. vivid example. Tell us yeah. more about that. It, it really yeah. flies in the face of of the way a lot of people like to sort of talk about yeah, life and yeah. the way they make decisions. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the availability heuristic means that, that we tend to um, think most immediately and most clearly about the, the, the stories that are around us. Uh, for example, if I were to ask you the, you know, which is more likely to be the animal which does you in, a shark or a cow? Uh, most people would say shark, um, because if you uh, read the newspapers, every time somebody gets bitten or eaten by a shark, it's usually a tremendous uh, uh, newspaper headline. Yet, in truth, by far, the largest number of uh, animal accidents are with cows. And we don't tend to think of that, but... <clears throat> That's the way it is. So, so our mind gravitates towards um, what we call availability heuristic. It gravitates towards the stories we've heard most recently or most vividly. And we do that without uh, a sense of logic. We do that with a, with a sense of uh, instinct and immediacy. <clears throat> Daniel Kahneman talks about this in some of his work, that there are two layers of thinking, one of being quick and instinctive and the other being logical in a deep sense of analytic and um, thoroughgoing and what I would call a kind of pessimistic turn of mind where you actually look at the facts from a, a, 
a, a deeper point of view of analysis. Mm. We're speaking with Alan Bernstein, and we're talking about his book, Mastering the Art of Quitting, Why It Matters in Life, Love, and Work. And as we've been exploring in these first few minutes, uh, part of the book explores why we are, as as uh, Mr. Bernstein uh, stated it, sort of hardwired to persist, sometimes in pursuit of, of fruitless goals, or, or maybe in pursuit of goals that... Uh, we probably should not have begun pursuing in the first place because they're uh, either unattainable or going to lead us down very dark paths of, of even self-destruction, perhaps. Uh, and sometimes we we end up attaining something but uh, persist in it even past the point where it is giving us any pleasure or, or satisfaction whatsoever. Or, uh, or, or where the point where we deny that we're being damaged by it. I mean, I have in my practice a certain number of people who have what they call golden handcuffs, uh, who, who, who say, I'd like to quit, but I can't afford to, and deny themselves the opportunity to think about what that means or how they can actually work with it constructively. And really what it is is an attempt to protect themselves from the, from the anxiety of loss and of, and of feeling they've wasted um, time and effort. Hmm. And I have to say that's that's one thing that I I tell uh, voice students all the time that uh, I mean the likelihood, particularly of pursuing, for instance, a a, a performance career in opera, uh, the the odds are stacked against you because the opportunities are just out there are not as numerous as the many aspiring singers, but that in many cases pursuit of that goal can lead you to all kinds of unanticipated good things and blessings hmm. in your life, even if. Ultimately, that 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 initial or original goal is is not achieved. I, I suppose that's a, yeah. that's a different kind of life path we're talking about. Well, but that's if you're available to look at uh, the options. I mean, one of the examples we use in the book. It's a famous uh, experiment. Uh, people are asked to look at two teams who are playing basketball, and they're asked uh, one team is dressed in black and one team is dressed in white. And they're asked to notice how many times uh, the white team passes the ball between them. And what they do uh, in the middle of this uh, clip that people are watching is a gorilla, a man in a gorilla suit, enters into the middle of the basketball game, beats his chest, and then exits. Now, unbelievably, 60% of the people watching this do not notice the gorilla. And that's what's called, we call that intentional blindness which is that when you're intent on pursuing something so powerfully and with such vigor, you can actually lose the opportunity to see what's really going on. And, of course, when uh, you know everybody imagines that they won't be able to miss this gorilla, but it, 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 it stays pretty clear that about 60 65% of the people don't see it, even though you can't imagine you'd be one of them. And so uh, what we're saying about intentional blindness is that uh, we also recommend that you stay alive and, and awake to other options, as you're saying. If, you know, what else can you do with the fact that you love music and you love singing if, if you're not one of the one in a thousand that's actually going to pursue a career as an opera singer? Right. Or be an NFL quarterback or an astronaut <laughs> or whatever uh, yeah. <laughs> lofty right. goal you might uh, ha- uh, have, have in your sights. You've been uh, exploring <laughs> my dreams, I see. <laughs> so uh, your book is not only about why we tend to be overly persistent, but of course your book is also about, as the title suggests, uh, the art of quitting. And I'm so struck by the fact that at at various points in the book 
you will use terms like quitting fully or quitting with authority and intelligence or quitting artfully. Um, It's it's so intriguing because it, it, it makes us realize that what you're talking about here is quitting that is very different from the kind of quitting that we probably most often hear yeah. about and 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 think and and don't think very highly of. Um, right. In fact, you you discuss some of this the different kinds right. of poor yeah. quitting. Um, we have uh, the stealth quitter, a guy who sneaks out. Uh, we have the faux quitter, someone who pretends to quit, but in, in actual fact they're just engaged at at a, a superficial level. I mean, there's there's all kinds of negative quitting styles that are not at all what we're talking about. What, what we're talking about is a full disengagement from all the energy that went into that goal and a re-engagement with a new goal that is actually amplified if people write it down and the steps that are going forward and anticipate what might go wrong. In other words, the, the, the closer you come to uh, preparing yourself for all the options going forward, what we call mental contrasting, more likely it is that you will be successful going forward. Hmm. I really appreciated uh, chapter three, um, which is quitting as an art, in which you right. talk about letting go on every level, something right. which is not as easy as it might think, especially because exactly. I think a lot of us, if, if all you know of quitting is the thought of stomping out the door, slamming the door behind right. you, that there's nothing right. easier than that. But right. you're talking about something else. And, and, uh, and, and on a very scientific sort of level, talk about uh, this idea of letting go, of disengaging on, on various levels, cognitively right. and otherwise. Uh, right. Talk us through those, those levels of disengagement, because this is, in many ways, the heart of the matter. Right. The cognitive disengagement is the decision that this is not the right experience for you. And most people can do that in some way. However, we, we do find there's also uh, a number of other levels of disengagement. For example, there's um, as, what we call affective disengagement. In other words, letting go of the feeling of uh, this is the only career for me. And um, you have to acknowledge at that point you, you're going to go through a series of steps through that, um, similar to uh, grief steps. You start with, first of all, once you realize that this may not be the career, most people counterintuitively put more energy into saying that's a mistake until you realize that you're actually working against yourself. And then there's a, a feeling of, of blame and, and anger. Why did this happen? Who, who, who caused it? And after that, there is some feeling of sadness and regret. And these things can take place all at the same time. They're not necessarily consecutive until you then re-choose. And at that point, you're free to what we call do motivational uh, engagement, um, that, that you, you move the energy that went into the former career or the former choice into a new direction. Um, what will motivate you that in, in that? And finally, there's the behavioral re-engagement, that you put all your energy at that point into... Uh, whatever the new career choice is, and, and you've actually made the shift. But we've defined these uh, four levels because the, the, we can't stress enough the power of not wanting to be shamed by having made the wrong choice, that sunk cost fallacy. And so uh, we really talk about, uh, in a sense, moving the energy from the past into the future. 
and that it's a, a, a learned process. It's not an automatic process. Hmm. Um, as our time dwindles away, I, I want to make sure to give you a chance to uh, expand a little bit on, on one point in the book that I, I think is also very much worth making, mm-hmm. and that is the fact that the power of positive thinking is not something that maybe we should entirely discard, yeah. but it is so important to use that sparingly, exactly. wisely in one's life. As well, someone we, who has helped a lot of people yeah. try to make decisions related to this, what is the role of positive thinking and how we look at ourselves and our lives and yeah. the decisions we need to make? Well, we, we, we refer to it in the book as the optimistic bias that... that, that um, People tend to, in, in their wave of optimism, they can overlook the possible uh, things that are going to get in their way. Um, they, they vastly, for example, overrate how long they'll feel good if they get, uh, say, a new position or a raise. Or, um, and, and so uh, we, ask, we ask people to recognize that there is uh, this optimistic bias and to... Um, to use what we talked about a little earlier, the mental contrasting, to, to be able to anticipate the possibilities of things that are going to get in the way and how you're going to deal with them. And we ask people to think of their future um, goals, not in terms of imperatives like, I will do this, but rather in terms of challenges, in terms of, will I do this? Uh, so that they enter into uh, the research mode with their own thinking rather than the black, white, uh, going forward, uh, uh, kind of unilateral, I will. Uh, we find that, that will I, and the research supports this, uh, anticipates the future. Hmm. Your book is full of practical solutions on taking apart the process of quitting and how <laughs> quitting is something we need to, to view in, in, in various steps, almost like the steps of grieving in a sense, mm-hmm. and that, uh, uh, that ultimately uh, good things uh, await someone. If, if you find yourself in a position where it's really time to, in a sense, reboot your life, redirect it, that uh, quitting sometimes means taking us off of a path that we are better off abandoning. We simply need to be mature enough to look past the little engine that could and the other myths uh, with which we tend to uh, be uh, overly preoccupied. Um, uh, One thing I want to say in closing is I appreciate how this book goes way beyond the theoretical uh, that you really, you and your co-author have, have, have obviously thought in very practical terms, and I suppose that springs in large measure from the fact that you've really sat across from all kinds of people, probably hundreds of people by now, and helped them grapple with uh, yeah, with this very matter. That's true, but I also lived it, which I think is the engine that could. Hmm. The book is Mastering the Art of Quitting, Why It Matters in Life, Love, and Work, published by Doc Hopple Press. Alan Bernstein, thank you so much for writing this uh, marvelous book. I I foresee it being very helpful to many people, and I enjoyed talking with you about it. Great. Greg, take care.